when I was in Dallas uh, a few weeks ago, actually a couple of months ago now, as I think about it, I uh, went out to the shed in back of my father's house and I found a lot of his old tools. Uh, my father was a, was a collector of tools because his theory was there, there is a tool for every job. Uh, if you just hunt long enough, you'll find precisely the right tool. As a matter of fact, I can remember how upset I used to get when I would use the wrong tool for a job. If I pried uh, the top off of a paint can with a chisel or a screwdriver, uh, you'd have a fit because that's not what a screwdriver or a chisel is for. You pry the top off of a paint can with a paint can prior. <laughs> and uh, that was just his outlook on, uh, on tools. I remember one time finding a, a tool for which there was no conceivable explanation. I pondered it and looked at it. It was a, a chainmail glove, and it had a strap of leather across the palm uh, and a little hook on that piece of leather. And I looked at that thing, and I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it was for. And so I took it into the house and asked him, and said, corn husker. Grab the ear. I see hard and smiling. He knows what it's for. Grab the ear of corn with one hand, and uh, you, you can strip the husk off with uh, the little hook. Of course, now it's all automated. But back in those days, it was done by hand. And uh, though my father had nothing whatever to do with corn anymore, he still had that, uh, that corn husker hang because that was the proper tool for the proper job. If you ever had to take the husk off of uh, shuck a ear of corn, well, that's what you used. Which raises the question in my mind, what am I for? What are you for? What purpose do you have in life? Why did God design you? Well, if we look at the manual that, that comes with man, God's word, uh, he tells us that we are made for him. We're made for God. That, that's our purpose. That's why we were created. We were made to be deeply, profoundly loved by God. That, that's where that deep hunger for relationship comes from. We were created to be loved by God and to love Him back, to love in response. That's what fulfills us. Nothing else will. All of us, I'm sure, have some person in, in our life, someone in our past, some very important person who didn't love us enough. That may have been your father. Uh, may have been your mother, you know, like Tommy's mother's uh, mother. He always loved the other brother. She always loved the other brother, and maybe that was true of you. Um, maybe your dad thought uh, you were cute, as the cartoon said, but uh, your, your brothers and sisters didn't. There, there's someone in your life that didn't love you enough. And we're inclined to blame a lot of our problems on the fact that we weren't loved enough. In fact, a lot of psychotherapists will take us back into our past and say your problem is that your mother didn't love you, and that's the way you are today. But the problem is that no one can love us enough. No human being can love us enough. Our love tank is so big that we can only be loved by infinite, infinite, perfect love. Only God can love us enough. That's what we have to learn. That's what Paul has been teaching in this book. God has an enormous amount of compassion. A great deal of love for you and, for you and me. 
That's what we're made for. And our response is just to love him back. To give him our bodies. That's what Paul says. Because of the compassion of God, give yourself back to him. And then God begins to teach us how to to love others. How to have an influence on, on our world. Now that's what this passage is all about that we want to look at this morning. Let me read uh, into it a ways, beginning with verse 9. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, don't be a phony. Don't be a fake. Our word hypocrisy is actually an uh, anglicized form of, of the Greek word that Paul uses. Hupokrites, under the mask, is probably the idea. It, it, it may be a phrase taken from a Greek drama, and they'd hold a mask up in front of their face to portray a male or a female or a, a comic character or a tragic character. So a hypocrite originally was just simply someone that spoke out from under a mask. He was a play actor, and he came to have a, a bad connotation, someone who was faking it. What Paul says is our love ought to be genuine, ought to be real, ought to be authentic, it ought to ring true. Now, how do we do that? That's a tall order. Love is uh, such a, a longed-for, desired-for uh, commodity, and everybody in the world knows that, that there ought to be love, but you know, love is still the sweet mystery. How, how, how do you do it? How do you produce genuine, authentic love? Well, Paul tells us. He says what we must do is abhor what is evil and cling to what's good. In other words, uh, it isn't enough just to be told we have to love people because we are so fallen we are so mixed up in our thinking, we do not know what it is to love. We have to be told how to love. And that's what Paul does in this passage. He spells out the, the implications of the statement. Unhypocritical love, genuine love, authentic love looks like this. Uh, God is always doing that for us. He paints pictures and, and he defines love for us, not in terms of abstract theology, but in terms of concrete ideas. You want to see what love is like? Just, just watch Jesus as he went about his affairs, the way he dealt with people. Now, that is love personified. Herein is love, the apostle says. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave up his life for us to be an expiation, a satisfaction for us. If you want to see a demonstration of love, then take a look at the cross. And then as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. Love is Gentle love is patient. It's spelled out in terms of the way it looks, the way it, the way it behaves. Paul gives operative definitions rather than abstract definitions. That's what he's doing in his passage. This is the description of what I would call good love in contrast to evil love. Remember the tree that was planted in the Garden of Eden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I, I believe there was a real tree there. I don't have any problem with that. Adam and Eve were, were naive. They were very, very innocent. They were children. They were very childlike. And, and a tree is a, is a concrete symbol of some truth. That, that you know, They had to have that symbol to understand. The point of the tree is that God would tell them what's good and what's evil. They weren't supposed to find out by themselves. They did, and they suffered the consequences, but that wasn't God's intention. His point is, if you want to know what's good, come to me. I'll tell you what's good. Uh, some of you can, can verify the, the wisdom of that approach. Some of you have, uh, have backgrounds where you've abused drugs or some other substance, alcohol. and Nobody has to tell you today that's bad. You know it is not good to use drugs. 
But you see, now you're suffering the consequences, perhaps sterility or or loss of short-term memory. You've fried some brain cells, and you you say, it's bad. I wish I hadn't done it. I wish someone had told me. Well, you see, that's what God wants to do. He wants to tell us what's good so we won't hurt ourselves. So that's what Paul is doing in this this section. If if we read it, read verse 9, the way he wrote it, it would read something like this. Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Those last two verbs are participles. They aren't aren't imperatives. They aren't commands. This is what love, good love, looks like. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. By the way, you'll notice that from this point on through verse 13, the argument revolves around a series of prepositional phrases. In brotherly love, in honor, in diligence, in spirit, in hope, in tribulation, in prayer, in the needs of the saints, in hospitality. In other words, with respect to these things, this is what you should do. With respect to brotherly love, you should be devoted to one another. And we all know what brotherly love is. That's the sort of love you have for for your brothers and the family. It's familial love, kind of warmth and affection that you have for one another because you're in, in the same family. Paul says you should be devoted to one another like that. And the word that he uses for devotion is an interesting word. It's a combination of the word for friend and the, and the word for what C.S. Lewis called duck love. Duck love is the love you have for uh, little cuddly things, you know, little puppies and children. It's warmth. That's what it is. It's warmth. In other words, real love is warm. It's not cold and aloof and austere and reserved. It's warm. You can feel the warmth radiating from a person that, that loves like this. Now, I don't like to hear that because my grandfather was British. And uh, I can always blame my aloofness on him. But I can't get away with that. See, it's, it's not an ethnic problem. It's a sin problem. I, I have to learn to warm up. I, coldness and aloofness and standoffishness it's not loving it's not loving so love ought to be warm secondly uh, with respect to honor or, or respecting people we ought to prefer one another actually the word for preference means getting ahead of one another you want to get ahead in this life then the way you do it is show honor to other people rather than seek it for yourself we are, we are glory hogs. We love it when, when people are passing out the praise. We, we, we want to be the ones on whom that praise is bestowed. Paul says, no, no, no. What we ought to do is seek honor for other people. We ought to be delighted when someone else is honored for something that we did. You ever been in a group when someone else in the group is honored for something you did? Oh, my, does that ever rot your socks? I thought it up. I trained the person to do it. And they're getting the credit for it. What is this nonsense? But Paul says, no, no, no. No, it's all right if others get credit for what you did. In fact, we ought to to push others. That's the whole idea. You don't push yourself. You you push others into positions of prominence. Ray Stedman used to have a sign on his, his wall in his office that said, there's no end to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit for it. Great deal of wisdom in that statement. But, oh, is that ever contrary to our human nature? Because we like to hog the show. We, we, we want to be 
center stage. We want the light on us. But Paul says if, if we really love people, we'll push them, we'll honor them. Instead of seeking honor, we'll give it. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In other words, love persists and endures despite setbacks, regardless of response, even though the love is unrequited, even though people don't return love because that's precisely what God did for us. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. He just kept loving us, even though we were unresponsive. That's what he means by, by being diligent and fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord as though we're doing it. For the Lord himself, for his sake and, and in his name. With respect to hope, rejoicing. It is being optimistic and cheerful about people. I, I don't think he's talking about the hope of heaven and home here, but rather the hope that God is at work in people's lives to change them. Uh, it's the same thing Paul is, say, is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, Love hopes all things. In other words, we expect God to change others. We're optimistic about their growth in grace. We realize that they're growing into the name that God has given to them. God, according to the book of Revelation, gives all of us a new name when we come into relationship with Christ, and then by grace we begin to grow into that name. Peter's a good example. Remember Peter, unstable, always putting his foot in his mouth, always saying the wrong things, impulsive, uncontrolled, ungoverned. Jesus said, Peter, you're a rock. It took a while, but Peter became a rock. He grew into the name that God gave him. And Paul says, that ought to be our outlook about people. We don't give up on people. That's the idea. We're always hopeful. We, we're cheerful in our hope, optimistic about the progress that others are going to make because God is at work in their lives. Persevering in tribulation. The word for tribulation means stress or pressure. I don't know what happens to you when you're under pressure. I know what happens to me. I get real irritable and impatient with people. But Paul says if we really understand the nature of love, no matter how much pressure we're experiencing, no matter how much stress we're undergoing, we'll, we'll be obedient. Perseverance is, not, perseverance is not clenching your teeth and being stoic. Christians are not stoics. They're Christians. They... they they don't simply try to obey and grin and bear it, but they try to do what God has called them to do in the midst of the pressures. And that's, that's what Paul is talking about, loving people even when the heat's on. With reference to prayer, uh, being devoted, persistent in prayer, I'm convinced that no one changes apart from prayer. It's prayer that changes truth into life. Growing is not a purely cognitive process. It's not just a matter of knowing truth up here. It's prayer that gets truth from here into the heart and into the actions. And I'm convinced that behind everyone's growth, there's someone, probably unseen and unknown, who's praying. That's their contribution. You know, what an act of love that is, to be praying for people, persevering in, in prayer, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. In other words... Put it flatly, baldly, giving them money. One mark of uh, how much we love God is, is, the, is our willingness to part with our money. If we love our money, we won't part with it. If we love God, we will. We'll give away the possessions that we have to people that, that are in need. Practicing hospitality. Now, that's not uh, throwing a backyard barbecue for your friends. You have to understand what Paul is talking about. 
And in, in his day, when you opened your home to someone, they might be staying for a month or so. You see, there are a lot of Christians on the streets, people, Christians that have been in prison for their faith, and they'd, they'd be let out of prison and have nowhere to go. And so they'd end up on your doorstep, and you'd have to house them and feed them and clothe them and take care of them for a time. Or itinerating evangelists would come through, or teachers, and they couldn't stay in the, in the local inns because they were uh, disease-ridden and bug-ridden and a lot of uh, drunkenness and violence, and they were filthy, dirty, and there's no place for them to stay. So they'd end up on your back doorstep knocking on your door saying, can I stay here? And they might stay for, for weeks. You have, you have to take care of them, shelter them. Uh, your, your house would be a safe house. Harbors. As a matter of fact, that's the way Tyndall translates this phrase. Christians have harborous dispositions, they, he says. They're, they want to shelter people. You know, the story of the, of the uh, 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 Schaefer's, uh, Francis Schaefer and his wife Edith, they went to Switzerland not to debate theology with uh, university professors. They went to Switzerland to, to minister to little children. And as a result of their living in Switzerland and seeing the needs of students around them, they opened their home. That's why they called their home L'Abri, in French means the shelter. Uh, students would show up on their door looking for a place to stay, friends of their uh, children who were in college in Europe. And they, if you've read their story, you know what a toll it took on their home. These kids destroyed their home, basically. All their wedding gifts were gone by the time they... Four or five years passed. All their china was broken. But they opened their hearts and their homes to, to these kids. They harbored them. They had a harborous a disposition. Paul says that's, that's what love means. You'll practice hospitality. Now he changes uh, uh, his approach a bit in a series of commands that follow. Bless those who bless you. Bless and curse not. That's what Jesus meant when he said, what do you do more than others? Uh, it's one thing just to be silent when someone persecutes you. It's another thing to give them a blessing. It's one thing to not curse them. It's another thing to say something very positive and loving toward them. That's the mark of authentic faith. We don't take offense when people wrong us. We used to have a, a black maid. Her name was Anne. She was a wonderful, sweet Christian woman in her 60s, most of the time that she worked for us. I, I can remember sitting on the floor as a child in the kitchen on a cold tile floor, and she would sing spirituals and hymns while she worked in the kitchen, had a deep love for Christ. I really loved her. She was sort of a second mother for me for years. And uh, uh, <laughs> my father bought me a slingshot one day. And I wanted to show it to her. So I ran into the kitchen and I said, Hey, Ann, look look what, what my father got me. I, he got me a nigger flipper. And the minute I said it, I, you know, I was just overwhelmed with shame. I realized what I had done. I, still, I must have been about eight or nine years old, but I still remember how my face just flushed. You know, that dear woman did not bat an, eyebrow, an eyelash. She didn't show anything on her face. She just reached over and took it, and she looked at it, and she said, oh, that's, that's, that's wonderful. She said, that's, a, that's quite an instrument you got there. She said, I hope you really don't hit anybody with that and hurt them. And, and she just, uh, she really liked my uh, slingshot. I've never forgotten that. 
She could have taken deep offense at what I said, but she didn't. She it, Basically, she returned a blessing. How, how do we treat the clerk at the grocery store who's rude to us? Or the person on the phone who's sharp and curt? Not great. You know, that, that's what Paul is talking about. It's a kind response to people who, who treat us harshly or unthinkingly. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep at those who weep. That, that's a simple matter of being empathetic. Love is not only sympathetic, it's empathetic. We feel what other people feel. We're sensitive to their moods. We rejoice with those that rejoice. Uh, how, do, how do you childless couples respond to the news that one of your friends is going to have a child? Oh, that's such a tough one, but can you, can you rejoice with them? Are you single Men and women, when you hear that one of your single friends is getting married, can you can you accept that and rejoice with them, or does it make you unhappy and bitter? That's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about, rejoicing with those that rejoice and weeping with those that weep. Sometimes words fail us, and sometimes words are most inadequate. All we can do is, is cry with people. Uh, I think I mentioned a couple of years ago I had a funeral for an infant once, and the little boy was a little, a little the brother, little brother of the child that that had died was standing in front of the casket. And he was crying, big tears running down his face. And so I, I uh, laid a little theology on him. After all, I'm a master of theology. So I, I said to him, uh, uh, "Your little." Little sisters with Jesus. And he turned her in. And I, I've never seen such fury in a child in my whole life. He balled up his fist like that and he said, he said, I don't, I don't want my little sister to be with Jesus. I want her here to play with me. And he started to cry. He just broke down and wept. And, and there, there wasn't anything I could say. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed. I just sat down on the floor and gathered him up in my arms and, and we just wept together. I was so disappointed in myself. See, what Paul is talking about is, is, is not knowing all the facts, knowing the right words to say. It's a heart of understanding and sensitivity and, and love for people that demonstrates itself in this kind of empathy. That, that when people are, have, have, been, have experienced something good in their life, we can rejoice with them. And when things are going, going badly, when times are tough, we, we can cry with them. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, don't be a snob. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Be harmonious is the way the NIV translates the first phrase. There's a difference between unison and harmony. Unison is boring. I was going to have all of you sing one note, just a note of unison here, just to give you an idea of what it sounds like if everybody sings the same note. We're not like that. We sing in harmony. We're all different, but the differences don't make any difference. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. And, and, and we're not snobbish or snooty. We're willing to associate with the down and out. We don't, at a party, we don't gravitate toward the rich and the famous. And we go to a party, the governor's there, and we, we want to go over and meet the governor. But how about the little guy sitting in the corner in the polyester leisure, leisure suit that no one is paying any attention to. You know, are we willing to go over there and associate with him? Our Lord did, say, with all classes. 
class didn't make any difference to him. In fact, he's the one who warned us about going to a party and, and looking for the, for the foremost seat, sitting up at the head table. He says, don't do that. Go sit at the, at the end of the table, and if the master of the feast invites you up to the front, well and good, but, uh, but don't you seek that place. You don't gravitate toward the beautiful people. Spend your time with the ugly people, people that no one wants to spend any time with. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. It's conceit, of course, that makes us want to associate with the lofty. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, here he changes to uh, talking about love when it's offended. He's been talking about the way we extend love. Now, what do we do when, when we personally are offended? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. May I read that again? Never. Never pay back evil for evil. Don't retaliate, he's saying. Don't try to defend yourself. Jesus put it even more strongly. Don't resist an evil person, he meant. Now, he's not talking about the legal and, and moral and political right that nations have to protect us against evil people. He's talking about personal insult, turning the other cheek, as Jesus said, when we're insulted. He says, don't, don't pay people back. Martin Luther King was right when he said, what, what violence does is that it sets in, in motion a chain reaction that can go on for generations. Look at South Africa. Look at Ireland. As a, as a, you know, people have even forgotten what the original conflict was about. It's sort of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Nobody can remember how the feud got started. But it's been going on for generations because people keep retaliating. You touch on my car, I bust on your nose. We think that's tough. You know, it's manly, but... It's silly. It's childish. No, you see, we Jesus is right. We need to turn the other cheek and not not resist evil and not retaliate. You know, it's interesting. People know that's right. You don't have to tell them that. That's what Paul means when he says respecting. Actually, another participle: respecting what is right in the sight of all men. Have you noticed that in the Rambo movies? Rambo is always forced into violence. He doesn't want to do it, see? Because the world somehow recognizes that, that there's a nobility in non-defensiveness. That, you know, I remember when I was a kid, these movies, you know, uh, Cary Grant strolls into town with his gun slung low, and he's obvious, a gun, you know, he's a gunslinger. And some young kid tries to, tries to egg him in on, you know, get, get him in, nag, nag him into a fight. He won't do it. He turns his back on the youngster and walks away. And we think, hey, that's noble. You know, that's, that's the way a man ought to behave. And that's what Paul means when he says, that's what's right. Respect what's right in the eyes of all men. Don't retaliate. Don't take things into your own hands. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with, with all men. Jesus said in one of the Beatitudes that peacemakers are characterized their identity is disclosed. They're called the sons of God. In other words, the one mark, the hallmark, really, of a Christian is that we make peace wherever we go. We aren't picking fights. We aren't creating controversy. Uh, like the Irishman who uh, was walking down the street, saw a street fight, and he said, is this a private fight or can anybody get in? You know, we're not, we're not always looking for a fight. There are people like that. They go to bars just so they can fight. They wait for somebody else to start it, and then they jump in. But 
But Jesus said that that shouldn't be the behavior of, of a son of God. They're peacemakers insofar as it depends upon them. Now, he's not talking about law and order and justice and the right of government to maintain armies of national defense and police departments and those sorts of things. We're not talking about that. He's going to talk about that in chapter 13. He's talking here about the way we individually face into to evil people. Also, be a peacemaker. Don't retaliate. And don't avenge yourselves. Never take another participle. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. As the prophet puts it, God treads the winepress of wrath alone. We, we get in his way when we, when we try to take vengeance ourselves. We don't know how to do it. We don't do it appropriately. Let God do it. He takes care of things his own way. Uh, the best illustration in my mind is one I used last Wednesday in the men's class of Moses. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's not my opinion. That's what, that's what God said of Moses. Meekness is not weakness. It's non-defensiveness. Moses, we know, could take care of himself. There are some stories uh, that uh, make that very clear. But when, when it came to people like Lot, or pardon me, not Lot, but Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, his, he was non-defensive. There's one case where Miriam got, got on him because, as she put it, you're taking too much on yourself. You're arrogating authority under yourself. Under yourself.